Well, praise the Lord, brothers and sisters. We get to meet, we get to meet again. Um, we'd like to first start, uh, we're doing this in all three sessions to honor our veterans. Uh, do we have any veterans in the house? Stand. No, Just a thank you to our veterans. Um, to serve is to give oneself as an offering so that others might have life, liberty, and freedom. And this isn't just true for veterans, but when you think about saints, you know, the servitude of saints, they do the same thing as a veteran offers himself as a sacrifice so that someone may live, our saints do the same thing. And, um, and I thought it was very fitting to honor our you know, for all of us, we're going to honor our veterans, but also our veterans of the church. Um, while I'm thankful to have served in the military, I'm more thankful to have served God yes. than to have served anything in this world. Um, all sacrifices done with the right heart and spirit are never in vain. Yes. Never. So welcome to week two of the November breakout session for Job Through the Valley. We're going to talk today about the persecutions, afflictions, distresses, necessities of Job, and uh, <clears throat> the amount of material we have for today uh, means we will get to part of it, and then next week we'll finish. There's just not enough time to do it in one setting, um, but we'll, we'll get to a point and we'll stop and then pick up next week and finish off with the uh, afflictions of Job. Let's, um, let's start for, with prayer, not just for the breakout sessions, um, but also for uh, the offering, uh, Sister Red asked for prayers. So uh, if some could could uh, assist by gathering around, Sister Red will pray for her and her family. Does anyone else have a petition, a prayer, anything that you need prayed for? Okay, Lord, we uh, we just come before you in a complete spirit of humility, knowing that you alone are God of heaven and earth. And there is nothing, Lord, short of your glory. There's nothing, God, that can be compared unto you. We sit here tonight, God, because we have faith and confidence in you. And we have this faith only because you first gave it to us. Your word says that we love God. It's because you first love us. And we sit here tonight only because of your grace in our lives and our, your mercy in our lives and your truth. And we pray, God, that you'd wash us holy, cleanse our hearts and cleanse our minds. Create, God, in each one of us a clean heart. Renew, God, in every one of us a right spirit. I pray, God, a fresh anointing from the crown of the head to the sole of the feet. Let your oil flow from the heavens, God. Crown your people with glory, I pray in the name of Jesus. Let a blood covering come over your people tonight for the content we're going to talk about, for the revelation in your word we're going to talk about. I pray your blood will cover the linen of most of every heart in this room. That your name, God, will be glorified in our midst. That your name will be exalted in everything we have. God, we call upon you from the east and the west, the north and the south, knowing that you alone are God. You alone are righteous and holy. And we surrender, Lord, wholeheartedly all we have before you. You alone are God. You alone are pure. You alone are righteous. God bring you
praise for all things at all times. Let us be careful, God, that every work we have in our lives, every word, every deed, every motive, every intention, that it would fall in proper alignment with your perfect and holy will. Let our hearts, God, become pliable under your precious word. Let our minds be transformed by the, by the renewing that we might prove just what your word says, that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Lord, I pray for your anointing from the crown of the head to the sole of the feet of every person in this room and of all that will listen to this recording online, that your name will be exalted in their lives and their marriages and their children and their homes, that you alone, God, would have the preeminence in every part of their lives. Lord, we surrender wholeheartedly everything unto you. Have your perfect way, Lord God of heaven and earth. Everyone say in Jesus' name. God's faithful at all times. Let's start with the, our opening text is going to be Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And I'm going to read uh, the first eight verses. Oh, offering, I apologize. Please forgive me. We do offering. You want to? Did you just? That's fine. Sorry. Thank you for the ash. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. Most assuredly, there is a, there is a, a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. Thinking about Job, he started that mountaintop in affliction, 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 and then God restored. There is a season and a time for all things under the heaven. Today's session will delve deeper into what Job endured physically, mentally, and spiritually. Because this is a threefold attack, not just on the, the natural, but also on the spirit. We'll also discuss how the church, friends, and fellow citizens responded to and treated Job. Of the three-part series, today's will get deeper to the matters of the heart and of the eternal spirit. Today's session is broken into seven parts. We'll start with confidence of God and his elect, and we'll end with hope is only in God. We're going to start and end with God. And I mentioned that the content is really, a, it's quite a bit of content, so we'll stop at some point and pick up next week. So we'll get to as much as we can today. 
To set a backdrop, <clears throat> we'll briefly discuss the human mind and how humanity interacts with each other. We'll also briefly discuss the origin of sin and the origin of sickness and disease. To start, have you ever come across someone that twisted a situation or your words to give the appearance of something you were not trying to portray? Okay, I think we all have. Simply meaning you meant to say it one way, but it was received different than what you were trying to say. Sometimes it's simply a misunderstanding because we speak different languages, meaning we speak by our upbringing and past experiences. We speak by um, all those things that affect us from our childhood up into adulthood, and that affects how our mind works and thinks. Sometimes we just don't get the words out like we meant to, or we rush to speak when we should have waited on the Lord. Okay? There are times on one side or the other that a person may have something malicious there, but more often than not, it's simply misunderstanding each other. It is said of some studies that people hear correctly about 40% of what the person speaking is trying to deliver. This is a psychological study. And of the other 60%, at some point, the person, uh, the hearer's mind kicks in and they begin injecting their own thoughts and perceptions of the topic. And to make it worse, the hearer's past experience is good and bad, and their biases begin to play a part in what they hear from the speaker. And this in itself can sway the recipient and their reception of what's being spoken. This is why a person can be talking and someone jump midstream in what they're saying, and they try to finish the sentence. Has anyone ever had that experience? Okay. They think or are predicting what was about to be said, and sometimes they're right, and other times they're very far off base. Okay. And I think we can all relate to that. We've all had that experience in life. But to correct every perception and misperception can prove to be wearisome and time-consuming, and it would do nothing but grieve your spirit to try to correct every time someone misperceives something, so you just let it go. Right? Perhaps this is why God made the declaration in James chapter 1, verse 19, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing in captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Thank you, sir. Let's take a brief walk back to, in the beginning, creation, when God created um, all that we know in the world, because there's far, far many things that we don't know because there's mysteries that just simply God has not revealed yet. Uh, Brother Carr, would you mind Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, and <clears throat> every now and then I'll do Holy Ghost timeout and I'll expound a little bit. Okay. Now the servant was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Okay, thanks, Brother Carr. The word serpent there comes from a couple different words in the Hebrew. And serpent means a snake to his, that is to whisper a magic spell. That's one of the definitions of serpent. Okay? You think about Sister Eve in the garden. She was beguiled, right? She was seduced by the devil. That was that serpent whispering a magic spell to entice and seduce her into something that God did not call her to do. Serpent also means to prognosticate. And the word prognosticate means fortune-telling, um, false prophecy, 
all those type of things which fall into abominations under the Lord. The word serpent also means to divine, enchanter, and enchantment. There's a lot of definition to serpent. The word serpent also means to learn by experience. That learn by experience, has anyone ever been fishing? You, you put some bait on the hook, you cast it in the water. If it doesn't work, you cast it here, there, try different bait. <clears throat> there, there was a message I was, I was going to write a few years ago called the bait of the enemy. And, and this literally is what the devil does. He, he casts out a line to see, will, will they take this, this little bit of bait of sin or compromise or whatever it is? And if they take it, he has learned by experience that that worked for that person. If it didn't work, he goes to his tackle box and gets something else. This is a spiritual lesson from what happened to Job to us today. Um, that learning by experience is he's looking for every avenue to find a chink in the armor somewhere that he might bring down and destroy and corrupt <coughs> the holy things of God. Okay? The word serpent also means to diligently observe. This is good, isn't it? And you think about that word serpent, uh, he says the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. The word subtle means cunning in a bad sense, crafty, prudence, things like that. So if you can picture in your mind the devil in the garden, he's the serpent, learned by experience, diligently observing. He's watching every single thing around him. He's watching how Adam interacts with God. He's watching how Eve interacts with her husband. He's watching how they interact with the plant life and the animals and so forth. He's learning, watching quietly as a serpent to see how they interact, what works, what doesn't. Why do you think, you know, he roars as a lion? He watched and observed that the roar of the lion puts fear in the heart of the prey. And he adopted something. He's a chameleon that adopts things to try to destroy the holy. Is this good? Amen. Yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, Brother Carr, can you go to the next verse? And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, Ye may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Thanks, Brother Carr. We'll pause right there. Okay. The first part of that, the devil said, you should not eat the tree of the garden. I think we all know that's not in the Bible. That was the devil taking the word of God to twist the light ever gradually to get a bait, that enticing. Okay? And Sister Eve was amazing here because she was aware that he didn't quote the scripture correct. And Sister Eve corrected him very quickly. No, God did not say that. I feel the Holy Ghost. God said this. What if we corrected every misperception and stopped the buck of, mis of, uh, of confusion and misinterpretation of Scripture? You know, God's truth is one truth. One interpretation is His. Um, the last thing was Sister Eve told the devil that we, we can't eat it, but we also can't touch it. But nowhere in Scripture did God say that. Anyone tell me where that came from? That came from Sister Eve's husband. The commandment came to Adam, and it was Adam's job to give the commandment to his wife. And you think about the word garden, you know, planted in eastward in Eden. Garden means fenced about. Okay? 
Adam got the commandment from God and he said, well, here's the commandment. We can't eat that tree. We're going to die. We're going to put a fence up around our home, a fence of protection. And a fence serves two purposes. A fence keeps in what you want to protect and shield from the world. And a fence keeps out those elements and those things that will destroy and are harmful to you and your family. Adam put a fence of protection up to shield his family from the elements of this world and from death. Uh, Brother Carr. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth, doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as of God's knowing good and evil. Thank you, Brother Carr. That last text of Scripture is the very first false prophecy in the Bible. Okay? Very first time. Think about the definition of serpent, prognosticate, fortune-telling, false prophecy. This is the very first one. You're not going to die. You're going to be as gods. And this is also the enticement of Satan. Why do you think advertising is so good around the world? They show this great, beautiful hamburger that's perfect. Burger King, some people like the smoked, and, and it's in the air, and you can't help. I know some people don't like, some do, but the point is, it's that enticing enticing to see what feels good to the flesh, what feels good to the man and woman, and and draws them in to something contrary to sound doctrine and holiness. Is this good? This is the first false prophecy in the Bible. It was given to Sister Eve. Moving on. It is clear from last week when we read Job chapter 1, verse 6 through 13, I'm going to read a small excerpt of that. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance has increased in the land. The enemy knew Job. Not personally, he knew of Job. He diligently watched and observed Job just as he diligently watched and observed the sons and daughters of God, every one of them. Did y'all get that? Because none of us are, are oblivious to attack. And he's watching and observing each one of us for the good and the bad. Okay. Um, the enemy knew Job was protected. And what did the scripture say? On every side. That should be revelatory there. This tells us the enemy was looking for a weak spot in Job in his life that he might exploit. And he did this before he ever approached God. Furthermore, when God offered up Job, this tells us two immutable facts about afflictions, persecutions, necessities, sufferings, and distresses. Sometimes the enemy comes to us with no permission from God. Just as he did Job, on every side, he's looking for a weak spot in Job. On every side of the sons and daughters of God, he's looking for that chink in the armor. What's that place? Okay. John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. You know the scripture, and he does. Sometimes, I'll pause right there, sorry, I've got to follow the Holy Ghost. Yeah. <laughs> Several years ago, uh, 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 an evangelist came in and they were preaching. And they took a group of people to the altar and they had them together. And he was demonstrating the works of how the devil works in the church. 
And he grabbed one of them and just pulled them ever slightly away. And then had a distance between them and he wedged himself in between them and the rest. Y'all remember this? Okay. This is exactly what the devil does. What can he do to get you to pull a little bit back? And if he can get you to pull far enough back and he's in between you and God, where's your vision of the church? Sometimes God offers up us up as a sacrifice. Think about Abram who was called to offer his son as a sacrifice. God does this because he trusts and knows his chosen and elect. This ought to build confidence in us, if anything. Because if he offers you up, that means he trusts you. He knows what's inside you. Also, is it not written of God that he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust? In Job chapter 1, verse 12, And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. When the Lord gave this declaration to the devil saying, all that he hath is in thy power, you can do anything you want, but don't touch him. He was telling him every single part of Job's life, you can do anything. You can wreak complete havoc in Job's life. You can destroy every single thing, anything you want to do, just him you can't touch. Has anyone ever been in a tornado, seen a tornado, the massive destruction? Imagine that is all Job saw. What's the whirlwind of destruction in every single part of his life? 360 degrees, there was no peace. God knew Job, and I italicized that knew, because you can know a person's name and know of them, but not know them personally or intimately. God knew Job personally and intimately. Job, and he trusted him. Some may think this is a, uh, an odd thing to say, but what a privilege that God would allow evil to come against his chosen and elect. What a privilege to let affliction that God would let it come toward us. After all, it is all for the glory of God and for a testimony. It simply means that God trusts you. This is good, isn't it? It's going to be continued next week because we're not going to get done with it this week. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 13. Behold, O beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. That was 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 13. We know that the devil had already done recon of Job. Now, we think about, a, there's a few of us, Brother Adams is a veteran as well. Thank you for your service, Brother Adams. There's a, there's a few of us that are veterans in here. And I, when in the military, they they did a lot of teaching military strategy. You know, know your enemy, know their strengths, know their weaknesses, their armaments, um, their language even, their signs, their insignias, their uniforms, every component we had to understand. 
Uh, so we had to go to combat. We had some familiarity of understanding what they look like, what they do to help with destroying and defeating the enemy. This recon that Job, that the devil did on Job was just for that one purpose, a reconnaissance mission to see what can I do to utterly destroy Job. Um, and he did this, of course, before God offered him up this this whole thing means he was not only watching, diligently observing Job, but he was also watching his wife, he was also watching his children, and he was also watching all that Job had. There wasn't anything that Job had. Easier to get to. Right. And what does the scripture say? He's the prince and power of the air. This is, this is one of the critical things about having a secret closet of prayer. If we're going to pray those private and intimate things before God, it doesn't need to be in a place in a setting that our prayer isn't secret with God. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Job understood those concepts of, of a prayer life in that secret chamber. In the garden that was planted eastward in Eden, the serpent did not go after Adam to entice him, but he went after Eve, his wife. He did this in part due to he knew this was Adam's weak spot, for he loved his wife dearly. And the enemy knew the innocence of both of them, Adam and Eve. And he sought to exploit their innocence, which he did. When God offered up Job in verse 12, then Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and began planning his attack on all he had. Now, it's interesting to note when we get to the second wave of the attack, he instantly attacks Job, but at this place, he did not. Verse 12, he's talking to God. God gives him permission to do dot, dot, dot. He leaves God, and he begins planning. And we find in the very next verse, and there was a day, which tells us there was a space of time between God giving permission and when the devil began his attack on Job. Verse 13, Job chapter 1, verse 13. And there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. Then the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Verse 16, while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only and escaped alone to tell thee. Do you see a pattern emerging yet? Okay. Every time the enemy leaves one servant alive that he might deliver the devastating news to Job. You think about a boxer, they're getting that knockout blow. And that's what Satan's doing. He's trying to do that knockout blow every time to Job, but he's unsuccessful every time. Strategically, the onslaught was planned so <coughs> Job would get the news back to back to back. This, brothers and sisters, is another tool of the enemy to distract to the point that a person feels overwhelmed, confused, and begins to wonder if they ever heard from God. And they begin to wonder if God even knows them. Moving on to verse 17. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said the Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away. 
yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. The Sabaeans, which is Sheba, were from a far country, meaning they came a distance to get to Job. They weren't his next door neighbors, okay? And both the Sabaeans and Chaldeans were of the world, idolatry, paganism, tamaz, and so forth. Simply meaning the initial attack on Job, where man was used to afflict Job, was that the ungodly came against him first. That was the initial wave. Job chapter 1, verse 18. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. The enemy, brothers and sisters, is watching was watching the time and season for when Job's children would start another season of eating and drinking wine. He knew. For this would have always started at the eldest brother's house and moved down sequentially. And this gives us that one more validity <coughs> of him planning and plotting this very dramatic attack on Job. Job would have been preparing for another round at this point of burnt offerings for each of his children in case they had sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Remember last week? They would go feasting, eating, and drinking wine. Job would perpetually offer a burnt offering for each one. Job would have been preparing for this knowing they were at their first sons getting drunk. Okay? And now we find four servants standing before Job. Four servants. And that's a sequence we just read each one having delivered the news of theft and murder and destruction and the death of his seed, the death of his children. And all is gone except his wife. She's somewhere, we'll have to come back to that later because we just don't know where in the world Job's wife is. She's void in the scripture until we get to another place, which is really interesting. Job's enduring all this, where is his wife? Where's his helpmate? Um... Job chapter 1, verse 20, Then Job arose and rent his mantle, which is the outer garment, and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. Can you, can you all imagine this? You've just lost every single thing, and the only thing you can do is fall down and worship and bless the name of Jesus and exalt him with all you have. Maybe to dance around the altar. Verse 21, and he said, and said, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is a man after God's own heart. And now so much could be said about Job for the losses and grief, the woe is me, that could have come out of his mouth. But Job did just what Paul mentioned. Romans chapter 4, verse 20. He staggered not at the promises of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. That was Job. We find in the last verse of Job chapter 1, in all, that, in all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. What does it mean to charge God foolishly? Anyone? Blame. Blame. 
Anything else? Any other thoughts on charging God foolishly? Yep. I mean, who are we? We're dust. God is God. If he chooses to give you a family, he chooses to give it. If he chooses to withhold, he withholds. You know, some who lose their children, they take the, the thought, I guess, if you will, God allowed them that child for a season and then God took them yes. because he's God. He can do what he does and, and it isn't our job to question the why, but to simply know his ways are far past ours. Right. Yes. His ways are always right and our ways are, are always, uh, not always, but our ways are all too often inclined by our stinking, rotten flesh. Okay, is that still good? Okay, okay. When affliction comes, and I made it, you know, just a joke only about COVID because we're in that whole season, and I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm under the rhetoric of all that, but it, it was just funny to go in with this. Anyway. The devil could not get to Job with the peripherals. And that simply means he couldn't get to Job with anything outside of Job. Family, home, finances, possessions, and so forth. It was almost like Job was an island unto God alone. And everything else did not matter. Did it mean he didn't love his kids? He did. He just couldn't do anything about it. In the natural today, cars break down, no money to pay rent. No food in the house, and everyone is uh, hangry. I think that's what someone called it. Children being all rebellious. Wife following Sister Eve instead of following the husband, and a house divided. Husband just won't live for God, so his wife refuses to follow him to hell. That's good for her. And no one wants to be your friend on social media because you're so stinking depressed about nothing going right. (laughs) (laughs) That poor me blues, okay? Nothing was going right for Job, but he stayed faithful to God. He stayed faithful. It didn't matter if everything was gone, he was going to stay faithful. In life, the Lord allows opportunities of preparation for things to come. Think about cancer, heart issues, diabetes, and so forth. Many times the signs become visible, pain, suffering, so forth for the one about to endure whatever it is, whether it's a small or a great measure, there's always signs traditionally that come ahead of time. This preparation serves as a flag of preparation for that person and their loved ones. It helps those affected to be equipped to more easily overcome and endure the small and large issues of life, okay? Some things can be endured at the onset while other things must have a time of acclimation to bear it. Not all things can be bore without preparation and acclimation. You know, Job, he had that preparation initially, everything except for him. And then he was offered up. That's that preparation. And if you think about it in your life, you'll probably see that same model. Some issue in a family member or whatever it may be, start to something small and then it grows and it it allows you to be more prepared for what God has shown for the future. This, um, this prelude the Lord so graciously allows is often misperceived or even prayed against or declared to be a fault or even sin. Being sick does not always mean there is sin at the door. Okay? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. John chapter 9, verse 1 through 3, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth, 
And his disciples, the church, asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man has sinned, and nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in them. John chapter 9, verse 1 through 3. And as we get into, it'll probably be, Lord willing, next week, we'll get into more examples of that where the church interpreted or read a situation and they were completely off base. And this really is to help us understand the importance of, of um, following the Holy Ghost and not emotion and so forth, okay? Sometimes it's just life and the cycle of life. Good and evil come. Life and death come. Love and hate come. Is this not taught by the preacher? For there is a time and a season to every purpose under the heaven. In our next verse, Job chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, what's the very first words? And there was a day. There's no definition in the Bible from the first assault on Job till this next assault in Job chapter 2, how much time elapsed. But we know, and there was a day, denotes there was a space of time, whatever small or great that may have been. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? As though God didn't know. Because he already knew the wickedness of Satan. And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and sheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. Job chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. Verse 6 and 7. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. <clears throat> so he's already lost everything. All of his children are dead. His wife's still vacant. Okay? He's got a wife. Yeah, I mean, maybe she went on vacation. I don't know. But, but, I know, I know. But... It's just interesting she's still vacant in Scripture. And when a, a spouse is going through something, their help me, whether the wife is going through something or the husband, they've got to bind closer together and not farther apart. Because then you get marriages failing and you get dysfunction in the home and the family. And couples have got to bind together every more. But anyway, Sister, Sister Job is gone somewhere. Her name's not mentioned in the Bible. So, Sister Job. So. So, so we, uh, we come to this place where God says you can do whatever you want to Job. You can take Job to the point of death. You can take him to the point that he's paralyzed. You can take him to the point he is completely hopeless. 
You can take him to the complete depths. You just can't kill him. What an offering. What confidence that God had in Job. You know, it's a privilege for God to allow afflictions and persecutions and necessities and distresses to come to us. And I think there's a scripture that talks about get joyful, get happy about those things. It's easier said than done, huh? Okay. This word boil from the Hebrew means to burn. And it means inflammation, ulcer, boil, and botch. Uh, B-O-T-C-H, which I, I didn't write the definition of botch, but it falls in the same realm of inflammatory disease. Okay? Boils were all over Job from the very top of his head to the very bottom of his feet. What this means is, as he stood, he was standing on sore boils, which increased that pain and discomfort. If he sat down, he was sitting on boils. If he laid down, he was laying on boils. If he moved his arms, boils under his armpits. As he looked with his eyes, boils upon his eyes, his ears, his nose. There wasn't a place on Job that wasn't covered with boils. So disfigured was Job that in Job chapter 2, verse 12, his friends did not even recognize him. So disfigured. It says that he, uh, in Job chapter 2, verse 8, and he took a potsherd to scrape himself with all, and he sat down among the ashes. That word scrape from the Hebrew means a braid, and a braid means to roughen by rubbing. Um, and that braid has one other separate meaning, which is really interesting, and it means to wear down in spirit. When the enemy said to God, skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. This is a tool of the enemy to bring fear to people. Fear of death. Fear of loss of normal bodily functions. Liver, kidneys, organs, eyes, legs. It's that factor. And his preface was, if a man or woman is afflicted to a point in their body, they will forsake God in faith and throw in the towel. Curse God. The devil's a liar. Whether in the valley or in the plain or in the mountaintop, he is God Almighty at all times. If you uh, have not eaten supper, I just apologize for this next part. Okay. We know he scraped the boils. And you know what happens when you do that. Job scraped the boils to release the burning and pain. Pus would pour out of the boils and Job would have been covered from the top of his head to the sole of his feet in sore boils and in pus. What a grotesque sight it had to be. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 2, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry out of a dry ground. He had no form nor commonness, and when we <coughs> shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Was that 53 and 2. It's another one of those type and shadows of what Job endured and Jesus, what Job endured in the church. Moving on, where are we at? We have 16 minutes. I think we've got time for one more section. Job chapter 1, verse 19, And behold, there came a 
great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young men and they are dead and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Job endured losing his children meant several things. At least at this place in scripture, his seed is no more for his kids are dead. His name and heritage would not be carried on anymore. And if you know, there, there's some difference in men and women. For men, our name being carried on means a lot, our family name. And when that is gone, we lose some purpose. And for Job, losing all of his children meant there was no more heritage. There was no one, no one else to carry on his name, his family name, to move it forward. Job would be a last generation Pentecostal if he were in 2020. From last week, we discussed the status of his sons and daughters feasting and drinking wine. In the natural, we, knowing his sons and daughters died while they were drinking wine, coupled with no scripture to show any relationship at all with God for his children, leaves the eternity question. When his children died, where will they end up? You know, once they're gone, they're gone. There's no more repentance after death. There's no more restoration after death. A corpse cannot repent. And for the children to die spiritually, not speaking of apostasy, for there is no restoration for apostasy, but backslidden children who are alive can be easier to bear than death, for at least there is hope of restoration. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. When children die, it feels like someone has violently ripped a part of your heart out. A void in the heart that feels as though it can never be filled again. The agony of losing a child can be more than a person can bear, and for some people it can drive them over the edge because children shouldn't die before their parents. Job lost 10 children in one day. 10 children in one day. That's a reality check, isn't it? This meant his sons would not carry on his name. It meant he would never give his daughters in marriage. There will be no grandchildren or great-grandchildren, no weddings or birthdays or anniversaries or any such thing ever again. When Job made this declaration in Job chapter 1, verse 21, and he said, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It was his heartbeat. At that place in time that he could do nothing more for his children or servants or possessions and so forth, but to simply bless God. And this is all anyone can do. To worry is to have unbelief, and doubt, and God does not honor unbelief. Job kept his trust in God, knowing that his ways are past finding out. And what of David, when his son was dying and then passed away? Brother Carr, would you mind doing Second Samuel, chapter twelve, verse nineteen through twenty-three? <clears throat> but when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said unto his servant, Is the child dead? 
And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord in worship. And then he came into his, his own house and, and when he required, they set bread before him and he did eat. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who cannot tell whether God will be gracious unto me that the child may live? And now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Thank you. <clears throat> this falls in the same model of Job. Yes. When he lost them, he didn't charge God. He didn't go off the deep end. He understood. I can't do anything about this situation. You know, I mentioned a second ago that God doesn't honor worry. Worry is doubt. Worry is unbelief. Mm -hmm. Okay? So to fret and worry about things shows a lack of faith and trust in God. Job chose the path of faith and trust. That even though this has happened, I can't do anything about it. And the only thing I can do, just as David, the only thing is to honor God, to worship God, to live for God. And what of Job's wife? Hmm, we've got to come back to her. <laughs> is it not written about the heart? Matthew chapter 12, verse 34 to 37. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And I think we all understand the issues of the mouth, the tongue, are a telltale indication of what's in the heart. And this is our spiritual check for ourselves. Whatever comes out of our mouth tells us what's in our heart. You know, we want to know, am I having faith? Am I having trust? Am I having, what am I speaking? Am I speaking the oracles of God? Am I speaking faith or trust? Or am I speaking something contrary to sound doctrine and holiness? So out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified. And by the words, thou shalt be condemned. In Job chapter 2, verse 9, we finally find Job's wife speaking. Long haul Job's been through. A lot of stuff Job's been through. And now his wife's going to talk. And it isn't a, honey, I'm sorry. I'm praying for you. I'm going to fast for you. I love you, baby. I'm in this with you. We're in the boat together. Yeah, I mean, there's none of that. There's no compassion. There's no love. There's no mercy. His wife said unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Yeah. A back, the backsliding of Job's wife meant Job was truly alone in his own house and in his marriage. A house divided. And spiritually, 
He was alone walking with God with no helpmate by his side. What does the scripture say concerning a man? It is not good that man should be alone. But here we find Job having to walk alone. For there was no one that would bear up him, bear him up. There was no one to pray for him, no one to intercede. Job had no family to stand with him any longer. Yet Job refused to sway to the left or the right, but he stood with the Lord regardless of the circumstances. He stood with God even when no one would stand with him. Mm. And what, what about Job's relatives? Job chapter 19, verse 14, my kinsfolk have failed. That word failed in the Hebrew means forsaken. They abandoned him. All of his relatives. My kinsfolk have failed and my familiar friends have forgotten me. There's too many pages for the next section um, in a six-minute period. It's just not even possible. What questions have you got about Job? Well, I have a question. Yes, ma'am. You um, said about going to that secret place in prayer. Yes, ma'am. Can you expound a little bit about that? Is that more of like a psychological, spiritual, or is it like an actual literal place? What exactly? It can do you be both. It can be both. You know, How do you know you're in the secret place with God? Is, is the prayer boasted before people? Is your petition? It's like fasting. When you anoint yourself with the oil to fast, what do you do next? Wash your face. You wash your face so that you don't appear to men to fast. He talked about the Pharisees praying in the marketplace, you know, lifting up themselves to be seen of men. There's a distinguishing difference. Now think about that secret place because that's a great, great question, Sister Joanna. A secret place could be your physical closet, could be your steering wheel, could be any place. It's just you and God. Now there are times we all know because we're, we're, we're all of age. We all know there's times and places and seasons where you can't go get in a closet, right. shut the door and it's just you and God. You may be at work and it's just a bad day at work. Maybe someone just isn't being nice to you. You know, whatever. That secret chamber is right there. Mm-hmm. Calling out to God. Because if you are in that place of contention with someone and you open your mouth and utter words, what fruit is going to come? Would you not cast your fruit before the swine and they turn and rend you? Mm-hmm. Long time ago, a disciple had mentioned to someone, Lord willing, you know, they asked him to do something. They said, Lord willing, it was someone outside the church. And they instantly twisted those words to say, are you saying you're not going to do this? That wasn't what they were saying at all. They were keeping their faith as, if God permits, I'm going to do this and that. But that word was rendered against them because someone didn't understand the things of God. So the secret chamber is that place between you and God and no one else on this planet, just you and him. My place is when I walk with God. I always talk with God. Yes, sir. Nope. So there's sometimes you shouldn't say out loud to the church things? There are some things that you should probably, that should be, and I'll be careful with my words because the choice of words can be so important. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
there, there are some things that it would be wise counsel to take before God before you take to man. And because if, if this, is, this is going to be really good here, okay, by the grace of God, if, if every time a person had an affliction or an issue, they go to their friends and they go to the, the pastor, they go to everyone else, where is God in the midst? And where's the secret chamber of prayer? Where's that communion with God? Relying on God only. Relying on God only. Exactly. It's, you need friends, you need brothers, you need sisters, you need that support group. You think about circles of influence and inner circles of influence. Jesus had 12, 12 apostles, right? But he had three in the inner circle that was, who are we talking about? Peter and the sons of thunder. Okay, so he took Peter and the sons of thunder with him to places that he didn't take the others with him. You have those circle of influence and that inner circle of influence you can go to, but God, they shouldn't be first before God, especially if it's something critical. That answer the question? I hope so. Who are the sons of thunder? The sons of thunder are John and James. Okay. Uh, James, James and John, the brothers. Right? I was thinking that, but I, right. I didn't. They, you know, the thunder probably. Like yeah, there, there's a reason that they're called sons of thunder in the okay. scripture. Okay. Yeah. So I figured them, but I was like, I didn't yes, get that part. Yes, ma'am. Does that have anything to do with the seven thunders that we don't know about? No, it's their zeal. It has to do with their zeal and uh, okay. some some choice things they ask God so, for and so forth. So they were like the, they were 70s. Yes. But, right. okay. Right. 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 <laughs> yes, ma'am. We, we're at two minutes. Um, any other questions? And we'll have prayer about anything at all to do with Job? Or? I just didn't get two points. Uh, scrape and grave. Scrape means to what? Oh. Well, that's right, the answer sheet. Sorry. Scrape means to braid. Yeah, to rub. To roughen by rubbing, and it also a separate meaning is to wear down in spirit. And I thought that was a really interesting definition when we're thinking about all that Job was enduring. It would be, it could be easy for a person to wear down spiritually. But Job stood the test of time, and he stayed faithful at all times. Who would like to? See lead us in a closing prayer. The volunteers. With Adams, will you lead us in a closing prayer? Come on. Okay. Okay. Brother Carl, I'll pick on you again. I picked on you twice. I'll pick on you a third time. Okay. <laughs> Dear Lord, we thank you for your divine word tonight. We ask you to go with each one of us the rest of this week. Keep us close. Keep your mighty protection. Lead us in the path. That we may walk closer with you. In Jesus' name, we give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.